welcome, Life Church. So glad that you're joining us, whether you listen to us all the time, you listen to us to catch up, or you're a brand new listener, whatever kind of listener you are. We just want to say that you are welcome and you belong. And one of the best ways for you to uh, help this become a place that you don't just attend, but a place that you belong to, a community that you participate in, is to fill out a connect card on our Church Center app or our website. Let us know who you are, any questions you have, uh, any areas you might be interested in, we'll reach on out. Also, while you're at our Church Center app or our website, I want to remind you this is an opportunity to support what God is doing in this church, the ways that he is moving his kingdom. You'll hear a bit more about that in the message today, but go ahead and take advantage of that opportunity. You can do it on the app or on the website. But you are about to hear a brand new series. This one we are calling Dual Citizen with an E. You'll hear about that in Pastor Jared's message as he kicks off the series and talks about the empire and the kingdom. Give that a listen, and I'll catch up with you in just a moment. Welcome to Life Church. My name is Jared. I am one of the pastors. Before I go any further, I know last Sunday evening, there was like a thing that happened, and so I just want to like check the temperature of the room. Are we good? Is everybody all right? We're all healed. I didn't know if like this was going to be a pastoral counseling session or if if we could just talk about the Bible a little bit. Is that okay? Okay, we'll do that. Uh, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Uh, if you are brand new and you've just checking us out, uh, either in person or maybe you're online, and, or you've been watching online and you decided to come in person, we're so glad that you are here. We want you to experience belonging. And so the best way to do that is by filling out a connect card and you can do that online. So you can get your phone out and scan the QR code. Otherwise you can just go out into the lobby and they will be happy to help you get connected there as well. Uh, We are going to start a brand new series today. It's called dual citizen or dual citizen, depending on how you want to talk about it. Well, that'll make sense in just a second, but some of that comes off of the heels of something that I mentioned last week. If you are here where I mentioned that this year is an election year and there's lots of different feelings and ideas, even just when I say that sentence. And so I thought uh, we could do a little bit of an icebreaker before we get started. And I know Roger had you get up and like meet somebody that you've never met before. What I would love for you to do is stand and go talk to somebody and I want you to tell them who you're going to vote for and why. Ready? Go. Go. No, no, don't do that. Don't do that. That would be horrible. This church would uh, close its doors probably after after that happened. Uh, and why, right? Like everybody just check your vitals for a second. Like, is are you good? Are we okay? Uh, because that does something to us emotionally when we talk about that. That uh, makes our heart rate go up just a little bit more for a lot of us. And why is that? And we're going to talk about that. Uh, I, I should mention this as well. I think we've mentioned the stat before, um, but there was a study done in 2022 And the number is 42% of pastors either quit or were considering quitting. And the reasons for that, that they mentioned, the the top one was just the overwhelming sense uh, or stress of the job. The second one was feeling a sense of loneliness. And then the third one was political division in their church. Political division in their church. And so we got to talk about this. We got to talk about why that is or, or explore why that is or explore why that comes to that place. And that, that's, uh, that brings a heaviness for me personally as a pastor, um, not necessarily because of anything that you do or don't do. I'm, I'm actually optimistic about all of you and about where we've come as a church. 
But my heart goes out to my sisters and brothers in the pastoral ministry. And what is it that led them to that point to say, you know, this is just, it's just not worth it anymore. And so what I want to do is I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging that, but also wanting to be very cautious to lead us well, uh, not away from it, not around it, but through it. I want us to go through this together. And so we're going to continue this conversation in part through this series called Dual Citizen. Um, but also the reason I say we're going to continue the conversation is because this conversation has already started. I don't know if you know this, but elections happen every four years. So, you know, start getting used to that if, you, if that's new information to you. In 2020, uh, we had this conversation and we actually put together uh, what, we're called a, what we called a position paper in the area of politics. How does the church talk about politics? What does the Bible have to say about it? How do we behave as a church? What does all of that look like? How should we engage in our political environment? And so if you're newer to the church, and I would say a lot of you are since 2020, a lot's changed in this church in four years. Um, I would encourage you to go check that out. So I'm going to give you a resource just real briefly, uh, lifecanton.org slash our underscore beliefs. And at the bottom of the page, you'll see uh, our politic, uh, sorry, our politics position paper if you want to read more. It's just one sheet. We tried to just put one sheet together, which is really hard to do because there's a whole lot to be said about all of that. But I encourage you to go check that out. But we are doing a series uh, now called Dual Citizen. But there's two ways to spell that word. I believe it's called a homophone. Is that right? Homophone? Well, uh, two words that sound the same or to spell differently? Uh, dual and dual. I want to talk about these two words. We've got the first one, the D-U-A-L, and both of these words are the same in the sense of the D-U, which stands for two, right? There's, there's two things involved here in these words. The first one is dual having to do with, um, it, well, if we're talking about dual citizen, you have two citizenship statuses, as it were. So in a lot of sense, literally, some of you do have dual citizen. You're a citizen of America, and you're a citizen of your country of origin or wherever it is that you came from. And so you are afforded certain privileges because of that dual citizenship. This is a conversation really about your identity. There, There's two, two of something within you. Now, we're going to talk about it from a spiritual standpoint, in that we have a dual citizenship in the sense as followers of Jesus that we have one foot in, I guess, America or one foot in this world, this earth, and one foot in heaven. So, so there's a spiritual, uh, spiritual component to our dual citizenship. That's speaking to our identity. And we talk about that on our vision to reclaim our identity in Jesus. Uh, but then there's another word, dual uh, which is more of an action word. There is a dueling that happens as a result of this dual citizenship that we have. So our status of living in two places, having a foot in America, a foot in earth, or a foot in heaven uh, causes a dueling within us. And that dueling is basically where we get the, the word a, a contest, right? Like this is this is the kind of contest between two forces or two people with their fencing or sword fighting. That's a duel, right? And there's got to be one winner and one loser. So if somebody's winning and somebody's losing, how does that work within our identity? If our identity is in Christ or in heaven, our citizenship is in heaven, but yet we are here and we live in this space, there's a dueling that happens. There's a fight. There's a conflict within us. Which one wins? especially as we're talking about a political environment that we find ourselves in. 
Here's the thing. Uh, have you ever heard this phrase, be in the world, but not of the world? Raise your hand if you've heard that phrase before. Yeah, it's a fairly common phrase, especially if you've grown up in the church. Be in the world and not of the world. And that phrase has become so popular, in fact, that it almost sounds like, oh, that's probably a Bible verse. Maybe I'll just look in my Bible and see where that verse comes up. Here's the thing, that, that's actually not a Bible verse. But we get that idea from a group of verses where it would make sense to say that. I want to show you where this verse uh, or where this concept or phrase comes from in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 19. There's a whole lot of context around this, but we're just going to focus on this section for now. It says this, if the world hates you, and this is Jesus talking to a small group of his disciples, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. That's essentially where we get that phrase, you are in the world, but not of the world. In the world, not of the world. That's not entirely what this is saying, but I can, I can understand why we get that concept out of these verses. Uh, let's just break the statement down just a little bit more. In the world, not of the world. The first half is we are in the world. That one's a little bit more obvious for us to understand. We are in the world physically, locationally, geographically. We are in this space. Our flesh is here. That That's an easy one to understand. Of the world, not of the world, is maybe a little bit harder to figure out. It's maybe a little bit confusing, can sometimes be misleading. How some people would describe it is to say, if I'm not of the world, it's like saying I'm not from the same substance of the world. So everything that the world is made of, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm not from that substance or I'm not made with the same ingredients of the world. I'm made with the ingredients of Jesus is, is kind of how people describe it. Let me put it to you this way. I grew up um, spending a lot of time in the kitchen with my mom. And because I wanted to learn how to bake and cook, mostly whenever she made cookies, I wanted to be able to eat the dough before she put them into the oven, right? Anybody else do this? So, um, oh, one clap even. Wow, that's great. Uh, so I, I, the very first thing that I learned how to bake was chocolate chip cookies. I've made a lot of chocolate chip cookies in my day. I know what ingredients go in there. I've got the, I've got the recipe memorized. I know what it takes to make a good chocolate chip cookie, and I know what it tastes like, and it is glorious, okay? Then I got introduced to a vegan chocolate chip cookie once. Now, easy, easy for our vegan friends, okay? Man, there's no judgment. This is a safe place, okay? And vegan food and desserts have come a long way. I will be fair there. But, but, the very first vegan chocolate chip cookie I ever had was a different experience. It was a new experience. So I was being handed what looked like a chocolate chip cookie. And the person handing it to me said, this is a chocolate chip cookie. And by all, you know, means it, it, it seemed to be that until I took a bite. It did not taste like the ingredients that are supposed to be in a chocolate chip cookie. If anything, it felt like somebody got a piece of cardboard out of your recycling bin and called it a chocolate chip cookie, right? These are not the same ingredients. One of these things is not like the other. These are very different. It did not taste the same. It was disgusting. Okay? I could tell. I could tell the difference. When we're talking about being in the world, not of it, and when people say you're not of the world if you're a follower of Jesus, the fact is, is that we are of the world. 
right? Like we, we are of the same ingredients in the world. You and I, we have been raised in this world and formed by this world in such a way that you can't get out of that. Regardless if you've come to Christ or not, you have been formed by the world. Your, the way in which you view the world, the lenses that you have, have been formed by the ingredients of the world. That's a reality. That's a fact. Now, some of you might say, no, 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 Jared, I've grown up in church. I've read the Bible and I've read 2 Corinthians 5.17. says, if anybody is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So there are these two separate worlds. No, now you're in Christ. So you are made with new ingredients. And I would say that's partly true. That's partly true. It's a process. And we tend to read those verses in very black and white. I am no longer my old creation. I am now my new creation. And so there is no more dueling within me, but that's just not true. I'm still surrounded by, influenced by, formed by my circumstances, my world that I live in. And so there is a dueling within me. I'm constantly thinking about how do I behave like Jesus and what do I really want? (laughs) What does my flesh desire? Even though I'm a new creation, the old is gone. Paul talks about it as a process. He even says this to the church in Philippi. He says, God who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Which means you're not done yet. I'm not done yet. You are all, we are all in process. We are being recreated into something new. And we are not, we are, we are saved, right? But we work out our salvation through fear and trembling which means there's a process, there's a dueling that is happening within us constantly. Our sin nature and our spirit nature are constantly dueling back and forth. So then how do we talk about this in terms of a political atmosphere? How do we then behave as dual citizens? Uh, For the purpose of this message and kind of the rest of this series, I actually want to substitute out the word world and use a different word that I think is something that we as a church probably need to talk about a little bit more. And it's the word empire. Empire. I think it's helpful for us to understand how that actually impacts the role that you and I play as dual citizens. A foot in heaven, a foot in America, or a foot on earth. Let's talk about empire. And so I thought, you know, what would be a good definition for empire to sort of succinctly put it together And I wrote it down because I think most of the time when we think about empires, we think of ancient history. Like, oh, that's, uh, you know, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Persian, the Roman Empire. And we think about past tense kinds of things. Uh, Maybe another way to think about it is like this. This is one definition. It says this, the empire is the government that rules the star galaxy and is ruled by Darth Sidious and enforced by his apprentice Darth Vader. No, wait, that's not. That would be Star Wars for all the nerds in the room, including me, okay? But here's the thing. I actually do that intentionally because there is a definition from The Empire Strikes Back in which the way the Star Wars uh, empire is described. And I saw this after I wrote my own definition and I thought, wow, that's really profound. That's really interesting. Here's what I want to do. I want to show you my definition first. And then I want to just read to you the Star Wars definition of empire and see what you see as well. So here's my definition that I put together based on books and stuff that I've read in seminary and 
all of my thoughts that I tried to distill into one slide. It says this, here's what an empire is. It's a force in the world that is disguised as a common good for all people. But beneath the surface is really only interested in expanding their territory and culture through violence in order to make sure that you stay afraid and become codependent upon the empire's goods and services, all the while believing the lie that they are the only ones that have your best interest at heart. That's the empire. Like I said, we mostly think empire is ancient history, and it's more overt violence and destruction and expansion of territory. I think the way in which we talk about the empire in a modern sense is more covert. And so we don't talk about the concept of empire very much anymore, especially in church. Here's the interesting thing. Here's the Star Wars definition. The empire rules the galaxy by creating fear and using violence. It is a totalitarian government, which means it controls every part of the people's lives. It uses its military to kill or silence anyone who does not agree with its rule. That's a, not, that's, a, that's a fiction story. And yet has something very profound, I think, to say about the existence of our world and the world that we live in, especially as we talk about a political environment that's extremely stressful and volatile. And here's the thing. Jesus is speaking to a people who are in a political environment. To say that the Bible doesn't talk about politics is not reading the Bible correctly. It is a political document and it's a political story. The question is, how do we as followers of Jesus behave in that kind of system? And when we talk about John, John 15 verses 18 to 19, what Jesus is talking about If we use the phrase, you're in the world, but not of it, Jesus, what he's trying to communicate is that he is part of the anti-empire. He's part of something so much greater and deeper and richer than what we call the kingdom of God. That's how you and I, as followers of Jesus, behave. That's how we operate. That's how we understand our identity. I tried to come up with a very succinct definition of the kingdom of God. And I know there's a whole lot that could be said, but this is what I have for now. I want to talk about that definition of the kingdom of God. And it would say this, that the kingdom of God is any space where God's rule of love and justice embodied in the person of Jesus reigns perfectly so that all creation is being restored and flourishing. This is the anti-empire mindset that Jesus is introducing to his people. So now we need to look back at that verse and do some work with it. Let's look at the verse again, but we're just going to look at verse 19. And this is, uh, this is actually the NIV version, the New International Version, because I like the words that it highlights just a little bit better. If you belonged to the world, it would love, sorry, that's a typo, love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is about identity. This is about belonging. This is about where you belong. Who do you belong to? Who is possessing you in a sense? Here's the thing. We are of the world. You are formed by the empire. The ingredients of the empire have made us up. You belong in a sense to the empire at first, but in Christ, no longer do you belong to the empire. They do not own you. They do not possess you. So Jesus is talking about something different here. He is talking about 
your identity. He is talking about, in a sense, the act of reclaiming your identity in Jesus. Understanding that your belonging takes place in a far different universe than than you even imagine. That is beyond what you can understand in this world or in this particular empire. Why is it important to understand this from an identity standpoint? Because as we begin to engage in a political atmosphere, specifically in this country, in an election year, how do we behave? How do we create a place for the flourishing of all God's people? How do we create an environment where there is justice and love that reigns perfectly? Here's the thing. Here's why it's important to understand it from this standpoint in a political atmosphere, because it can become problematic in one of two ways that I've seen in my experience as a pastor, leading people who are either engaged or not engaged in a political environment. Here's here's one problem that comes of this. What we do is we try to marry the two identities together, this foot in the empire and this foot in heaven. We try to marry them together and think that one will sanctify the other. And so we say things like, well, I'm just going to vote for the Christian candidate. And then, and then they'll be the ones that enact the policies that I want. And then once they do that, then we'll be a Christian nation again. As if there was ever a time when we were absolutely a Christian nation. And I know I just, I poked a bear. I realized that. And my intention is not to do that in a antagonizing way. I would love to have more conversation about that. I will say this. If we say that we are founded as a Christian nation, but we're complicit in slavery, those two things don't work together. And if we stole and manipulated indigenous people for land and power, that's not compatible with the gospel. I understand that there are Christian values that were inherent to folks who were integral in the beginnings of this country. I understand that. But we have to have more complex and hard conversations about that if we're going to be honest and if we're going to move forward as a community that is multi-ethnic and multicultural. It's going to require some humility and learning each other's stories and embracing a difficult history. If we think that if we can just get the right candidate in office and that then we will be a Christian nation, the problem with that is that's still empire thinking. It's still expecting that the empire is ultimately responsible for being the delivery system to save us when it absolutely cannot save us. It can't and it won't. Only Jesus can do that. And only Jesus' resurrection is the power to restore us to who we were ultimately created to be. That's where we put our hope. And so we cannot be lured into this temptation thinking that the empire will do the saving. It can't. It won't. And here's the thing is sometimes the church is tempted into thinking, and this is the more covert operation, to thinking that if we can just be in a position 
of power and prestige and influence, then we can get done what we want to get done. Except Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Those who want to lead should serve. If you want to be the greatest, become the least and die to yourself and to your agenda. So again, how do we, that's dueling. How do we get those things to work together? What position do we take? Power or service and humility? Here's the other problem that comes up is the, the second, the one of two problems is one, we think we can marry the two identities together. The second one is we, if we say, well, I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. Well, then I'll just take myself out of the world. I'll, I'll just escape. I'll just run away. And I won't be involved in any way, shape, or form. And that way I can't contribute to any of the issues uh, because I will, I will have stepped aside. But honestly, that's a position of privilege to even be able to walk away from the injustices and issues that our sisters and brothers face every single day. Can't walk away. Because then how do I align myself with the mission of Jesus to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep? Running away isn't aligning myself with the mission of Jesus. We confront those issues, but we shift our expectation about what that looks like. And Jesus calls us in the Sermon on the Mount to be makers of peace, be peacemakers, not just peacekeepers through avoidance. You can't just run away and expect that it's hopefully all just going to work out in time. No, he actually calls us to action, which is why our vision is to bear the torch of Christ's justice and love. That's an action step that we are invited into and not just invited into, but commanded as followers of Jesus. Here's the thing. I think it matters how we read the scriptures. And I I specifically mean how we read it out loud. If I were to speak it out loud, I tend to put emphasis on certain words and phrases over others. And that actually creates theology in my brain and in my heart, whether I know it or not. I'll give you an example. Let's look at this verse. But I have chosen you out of the world. That's how I tend to read that. I have chosen you out of the world. But that kind of makes it feel like I'm, I'm plucking you out. I'm taking you out of the world, locationally, is what that feels like, or out of the empire, or out of policy, or out of legislation, or whatever it is that we want to talk about if we're talking about politics. But what if I change the emphasis in the way that I read it? What if I read it this way? But I have chosen you out of the world. Does that do anything for you? If not, that's okay. Let me give an illustration. Um, I grew up going to a public school and at recess, we played kickball, dodgeball, all of those kinds of things. How many of you played kickball or any recess games? Yeah. And then um, you had to pick teams, right? And usually the way in which that worked is there were captains chosen. Who were the captains? The popular kids. And I know this is going to come as a surprise to you, but I was not ever a captain because it was not a popular kid. Okay. That's just the reality. And it's my own trauma that I have to work through. Anyway, The popular kids were chosen to be the captains. And oftentimes, because I wasn't friends with the popular kids, I was either the last picked on the team, I wasn't picked at all. And you can imagine what that does to you emotionally as a kid and all of those kinds of things. But then there was one time where my friend was a little more of a popular kid. 
and he got to be captain for the day. And so he got to pick teams. Now was a wonderful, incredible opportunity because guess what? I got to be on his team. He didn't pick me first, but he didn't also pick me last. I was kind of like right there in the middle. And I thought, great, because I know him. He's my friend. We're good. I'm going to get on his team. I'm not going to have to deal with the feelings of being picked last or not being picked at all. It was a good feeling because I got to be on his team. Out of the kids available to him, he chose me. Do you see the connection? I have chosen you out of what was available to me. Not I have taken you out, not I have plucked you out, I have chosen you out of who was available to me, I picked you. I chose you. When you were the least likely, least qualified person for me to pick. He's talking to the disciples, and if you don't know the story, these guys are worthless, ragtag, like messy, dirty, politically divisive, people who should have not been in a small group together, all right? Like you would not put these people in a small group if they were part of our church. There's going to be a whole lot of fights. And yet Jesus chose them. He chose them out of what was available to him. He didn't choose the elite. He didn't choose the most educated. He didn't choose the most well-groomed. He didn't choose the ones who had all their stuff together out of the world out of what was available to him as really the popular kid, Jesus took the least. He's choosing you out of the world. Who will you belong to? Where will you find your sense of identity, your sense of belonging? Here's the thing. We have to grow in the way that we read the Bible. Some of the reason why I think we are so volatile in a political atmosphere and specifically in churches and why pastors want to quit is because I think we don't know how to read the Bible. I'm not saying we don't know how to read. We know how to read. I think specifically as it relates to the Bible, we don't know how to read it. And this is a very weird thing for me to say, but I think that that's actually the Bible's fault. Here's what I mean by that. Don't run out too quickly. Check this out. I want to show you a close-up of my Bible. The Bible that I'm reading right now, I want to show you a picture of the close-up of where I'm at. So this is the section that we're reading right now. But I want to circle this section right here, the world's hatred. So what our eye does visually is we look at this, this little blank spot, this void spot. We also see these bolded words, which says the world's hatred, in case you can't see it. And what our eyes tell us is, oh, this is a new section. This is a new part where Jesus is, he's talking about something different. He's talking about something new. This is a new idea. This is a new concept. I need to start over from scratch. And what we do is we negate the thing that just came before it. And so we treat this section of verses all by itself without considering the grander story that is happening. And what happens is we miss the how we understand our identity and belonging and then how we actually live that out. Let me show you the next picture. This is a close-up of verse 17 that comes immediately before verses 18 and 19. This is my command, love each other. And then we can talk about all of these other things. This is really hard to live out. There's a lot of dueling that goes on in here because we're struggling with, well, I, I, but I'm an American citizen, but I'm also a Christian. So 
what policies are important to me and who should I vote for and how do I understand this world and what legislation is important. The only policy that Jesus ever gives his disciples is to love each other. That's it. That's it. Everything needs to be motivated through this means. Everything you do, everything you say, the way you engage in our local governments, in our national governments, everything you do needs to be rooted in love for your sister, love for your brother. Everything. That's his only policy. So then the question is, is how do we live that out? How do we live that out in a way that honors others? Because we are formed by the world. We are formed by an empire that says, what matters to you individually is the only important thing in the world. That doesn't account for the each other part. Jesus is communal. And he's designing a new way to form community. It's incredibly important that we understand our identity in Jesus. The act of reclaiming our identity. Because it takes work. We have to wrestle through what that means and how we engage with the world around us. We have to get this set first before we can talk about what that actually means practically. And that's what we're going to be doing for the next couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about, okay, so we are citizens in this place. What's that going to look like day in and day out? Practically speaking, how do we engage in a very potentially divisive political atmosphere when all of us are coming from different stories, different backgrounds, different experiences. Here's the thing that we get from the New Testament in Paul. He's speaking to a church in Philippi that is absolutely dominated by the empire. It is a political scene and he is trying to form that church to understand what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in the midst of it. This is what he says to his church in the first part of his letter in chapter one, verse 27, it says this, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting for the perfect piece of legislation. Nope. Fighting to get your person in office. No, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. And then in case they forgot at any point throughout the letter, he reminds them again in chapter three, verse 20. This is what he says, but we are, not just I am, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. He lives now, there's a present tense to this, but there's also a future tense to what is happening. And then we get a look into the future from this vision from John of Patmos. He gives the the revelation of Christ Jesus. It's the last book of your Bibles. In Revelation, this is what it says, all who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God and they will never have to leave it. This is coming off of a conversation around persecution, by the way. And I will write on them the name of my God, identity. And they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. It's not off in the distance. It's not something that we escape to, but it's God's 
reign of rule and love and justice coming down from heaven. And I will also write on them my new name. There's new belonging, new identity that's happening. But this part I highlighted, they will be citizens in the city of my God. You know what that word city is there? The Greek word is polis. You know what we get from polis? Politics. This is, the, this, this is a political statement here. God is creating a new politic in the city of God, the new Jerusalem. It's not the actual Jerusalem, the physical Jerusalem that we understand. This is a metaphorical new understanding of this place where God's all-consuming love and goodness and joy and peace and hope reigns perfectly. It's a new city. It's a new politic where we get to live in complete harmony and unity and love. This is what God is establishing for us, for his people. And if that's the end, where do we start now? How do we conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of good news? We're going to be wrestling through that for the next couple of weeks. But the first action is this. I want to give you this action step for today, just today, not the rest of the week, but just today is to come to the table of belonging. What do I mean by that? Oftentimes throughout the New Testament, there are lots of times where Jesus or his disciples or the other apostles speak about a table. And if you can get people around the table to break bread together, man, you can do a lot. You could do a lot. Hospitality is so crucial to how a community behaves. But also Jesus gives a meal before he goes to be crucified. And he centers their understanding around this meal in a brand new way. And out of that, their action step is to love. And guess what? To forgive. Why would Jesus need to talk about forgiveness before going to the cross? Because they are in an intense political environment where there is power and persecution and violence and a lack of understanding about what it means to belong to someone. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed by somebody who had a political agenda, he was betrayed by somebody who thought Jesus was going to be my next candidate for Israel. And yet Jesus is going to the cross. So he gave up. On the night that Jesus was betrayed by that individual, he broke bread. And he gave it to all of his disciples, including the one who was about to betray him. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. And in the same way, he took the cup. After he'd given thanks, he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it to remember me. In just a moment, I'm going to have you come forward um, to the tables and we're going to participate in this meal together. And once you get your elements, just go back to your seat and and hold on to them and you can continue to worship. And then Roger is going to come up and we're going to take our elements together, receive those elements together. I also let you know that there are two cups. Take both of those cups because the bread is in the bottom and the juice is on top. But as we reflect on 
this upcoming year. Take this meal as almost like a launching pad for God's unity and love and hope that he is inviting us into, in fact, commanding us into. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, I confess that my words are limited. And there are things that I said um, that have the potential to harm. And so forgive me where my misspeaking or missteps took place. I pray for your grace. I also pray for the things that I probably should have said or could have said, but didn't. And so I pray for space and grace in this room to leave space for continued healing and clarity and understanding because we are so imperfect and so broken. God, we need your son, Jesus. We need your forgiveness. We need your love. And so as we participate in this meal now, I pray that we would have a very real sense of your nearness, your proximity to us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that message. If you are in a place that you can do this, I would really encourage you to participate in communion, even if you uh, were not in our walls this Sunday. This is an opportunity for you to remember with the community what Christ has done for you. So I would encourage you to take uh, some wine uh, or juice and some bread and to pause this to to take communion and reflect on uh, Christ's sacrifice and then come back to it. But uh, if there is anything that you need in terms of support and encouragement, we'd love to be a community that can support you. So let us know again on the connect card uh, what you may need, whether that's just prayer or some other kind of support. And we would love to reach out and support you in any way that we can. But I hope you have a blessed week. I hope that this message gave you something to think about this week in terms of your citizenship and your relationship to the empire. I hope you found it encouraging and challenging. And we hope that God moves in some amazing ways in your life this week. See you again real soon.